You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now present the Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Health Hub. I'm Kathy Biasse, your host, and along with our producer, Alex Diaz, we would like to welcome you to our show this morning. Good morning, Alex. Good morning, Kathy. How are you? I'm well. How are you doing? Pretty good. I'm full of energy today, actually. Oh, I, got a, I, really, I really got a good amount of sleep last night, so uh, I'm really pumped today. I got Excellent. lots of energy. Well, you sure have lots on your plate, so it's good that you've got energy to carry it all through. Well, uh... Thanks. We'll just have to hope that uh, I'm able to power through, but I know, I know everything will work out. Well, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will. You're, you're a very hard worker. As you can tell by our shows, are always uh, all the mistakes are edited out, and it always goes nice and smooth. What mistakes? No, what mistakes? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. Shh. Don't say anything. No, but uh, you always do work hard, and I always try and thank you for it. So another thank you. I do appreciate it. Um, today's show is being taped, so no opportunity for call-in. But please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at the Health Hub RMC on all three locations. And if you haven't done so already, please do subscribe to our podcast. We are the Health Hub on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, all your favorite podcast platforms. And you can also find our podcast on the Radio Maria Canada website which is radiomaria.ca, and on my website, which is kathybsa.com. So I'm going to move right into our show today. And for me, the relevance of this show goes without saying. And so as not to take away from the focus of it, I'm going to go straight into telling you about our guest, Leah Penniman, and introduce you to her book, Farming While Black, Soulfire Farm's Practical Guide to Liberation on the Land. Leah is a black Creole farmer, author, mother, and food justice activist who's been tending the soil and organizing for an anti-racist food system for over 20 years. She currently serves as founding co-executive director of Soulfire Farm in Grafton, New York, a people of color-led project that works towards food and land justice. The work of Leah and Soulfire Farm has been recognized by the Soros Racial Justice Fellowship Fulbright Program, GRIST, 500, GRIST 50, my apologies, and James Beard Leadership Award, among others. And her book is a love song for the land and her people. And as I do with books that I love and that are extremely relevant and spirit moving, I'm going to read to you just a few of the many, many praises for Leah's book. And again, it's called Farming While Black. Farming While Black is a rich and culturally relevant how-to manual for black and brown farmers filled with uplifting stories of black contributions to the agriculture and to ongoing work at Soul Fire Farm to build an anti-racist and just food system. This is the most inspiring book I have read in years, and that is by Ira Wallace, owner of Southern Exposure Seed Exchange. Another review states that equal parts of practical farm instruction and spiritual reflection on mind, body, spirit, and land, Farming While Black honors black folks' connection to land and agriculture while recognizing structural constraints that have ruptured those connections. Farming While Black is an important text that recenters blackness and black people in a conversation about being growers and responsible stewards of the land. And that was by Ashanti Reese, PhD, Assistant Professor of Anthropology and co-director of the Food Studies Program at Spelman College. 
And finally, Farming While Black is a beautiful and timely work that manages to live at once as a stunning memoir of the extraordinary life of Leah Penniman and her Soul Fire Farm, a methodical and innovative instruction manual for a sustainable farm practice, and a clear-eyed manifesto that uses the rich history of the Black farming legacy as the guiding ethos for an effective modern-day resistance movement. And that's by Therese Nelson, chief uh, chef and writer, founder of BlackCulinaryHistory.com. Everyone, this is a very important interview, and I, I really do hope that you will stay tuned with us for our interview with Leah Penniman. are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, The Health Hub, hosted by Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. Our show is being recorded today, so no opportunity to call in. But please do follow us on our social sites. We are on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we are at The Health Hub RMC on all three destinations. Welcome, Leah, to our show. It is an honor and a privilege to have you. Thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It's likewise an honor. We, we've been back and forth trying to organize the timing of the show. And as with everything, I think that there's a purpose and a reason and a synergy. And I think now is, is more of an opportune time to have you on the show than it ever was. And before we get into um, some deeper conversation, I think what I'd like you to do is explain to everybody what Soul Fire Farm is? Oh, thank you. I'd be happy to. So Soul Fire Farm 
is an Afro-Indigenous centered community farm that's located on 80 acres of mountainside land in traditionally Mohican territory. And our whole reason for being is to end racism in the food system. And in short, you know, we're doing that in, in three main ways. We are growing food using the regenerative, sustainable practices of our ancestors, and then making sure that food's available to the people who need it most in our community at no cost. Uh, we are training the next generation of black and brown farmers and subsistence growers through a whole bunch of in-person and online and um, home-based programs. And then we're, we're rabble-rousing to change the really unfair uh, policies and systems that we have in place that, that oppress farm workers and keep farmers off their land and make it really hard for people to get enough to eat. Uh, so we're, we're excited to be both on the ground day to day. You know, I just came in, I'm covered in sweat. I just came in from weeding our um, orchard. I'll be back out soon. But then, and then later on, I'll be on a call with, you know, some senator or congressperson talking about legislation that needs to be passed. So we got our, our fingers in everything a little bit. Well, where's the passion? Where did your passion come from? Well, you know, there's everything has so many origin stories, right? But I think that my passion for the earth uh, started really, really young. You know, my siblings and I, we were the only brown skinned children in our whole rural town of Massachusetts where we grew up. And, and to say that our peers were cruel would be an understatement. I mean, we just really struggled with a lot of racialized bullying and exclusion and, and stereotyping. So in the absence of a peer community, we, we found that the earth was our refuge and we uh, spent all our time in the woods. We spent all our time um, in the fields. So when it came time for me to, to get a summer job at age 16, of course I wanted to do something in nature. And I was lucky enough to score a position at the Food Project in Boston, Massachusetts, and just fell in love with that you know, elegant simplicity of seed to harvest. Uh, farm for many, many years. And then what caused us to start Soul Fire in particular was that my partner Jonah and I and our two very young children, you know, Nishima was two at the time, Emmett was a newborn. We were living in the south end of Albany, New York, which is a food apartheid neighborhood, one of those neighborhoods where it's just almost impossible to get anything fresh. And, uh, you know, when our neighbors found out that we knew how to farm, they started asking us to start the farm for the people. And, and you know, they were half joking, but we took that really seriously and, and said, well, we both have farming experience. Um, this seems like a, a good next step for us. And, and we started looking for land that would welcome us and um, eventually found our home here in Grafton. That was 2006. It took us four years to build up the soil and the physical habitat, the infrastructure to be able to live here and farm here. So we opened Soul Fire Farm in 2010 with that food justice mission. And who tends to the farm other than yourselves? Is this like a, a co-op or are you, do you hire people? How is the whole operation run? Well, you know, Soulfire has gone through so many incarnations. It certainly did start out as a small family business and, you know, it was just the family working and then we have, you know, interns or apprentices or volunteers coming through. We tightened that up and formalized it um, around 2015 when we, created both a nonprofit organization that runs the education programs and has employees. So, you know, I'm the farm manager and my colleague Justin Butts is the livestock manager. Uh, we have a paid apprentice and so on, um, as well as people, you know, doing other aspects of the educational work of Soul Fire Farm. And then additionally, we, we did create a co-op, but that co-op is a housing cooperative that holds title to the land. Um, we feel really uh, uneasy about the sort of European colonial um, method of dividing up and owning land by individuals. And, and the best thing we can do to uh, rectify that is to put our land into land trusts or cooperatives or some of these other shared structures. So, so we did form a co-op and uh, it's a really cool legal entity because not only does it allow all the people who live on the land, some of whom are our staff, others who you know, she used to live here who, who aren't staff, they all get a, a vote. So it's a one member, one vote structure in terms of how we make decisions. But we also were able to look at some legal precedent from New Zealand and also from the Ojibwe nation to put in some rights of nature clauses. So it's not just the people making decisions, right? Nature also has a vote. The, the forest gets to decide 
if it wants to be cut down. And that sounds really weird to Western ears, even though it's very, very common in indigenous societies to consider uh, nature as a sovereign entity. Um, and it was, we, we really, our lawyers uh, who are students, student lawyers that work, you know, do this pro bono nonprofit stuff, they really struggled, but we were, we stuck with it. We're like, you have to figure out how to make this rights of nature thing work. So, um, so that's the co-op. So there's two legal entities here. Um, in reading your outstanding book, and we will definitely get into into that, um, you are are you a continual student in your history? Did you was part of the impetus? What I'm trying to get at is was part of the impetus of Soul Fire to connect to a past, or has this understanding? evolved the more you've sort of dug deeper into uh -huh. farming? Um, yes, I and we are definitely perpetual students. Um, so, for example, um, you know, when I first started farming in my late teens um, and, and into my early 20s, I was attending all of the conferences that I could get to. I was reading all the books on farming, was really, really passionate about it. And became quite disillusioned because in these spaces, the leadership, the experts were all white without exception, and most of them were men. And so I started to wonder, you know, did I choose the wrong career? Would my, you know, intelligence and strength be better spent doing something more relevant? So I thought to my people, like working on housing discrimination or education or whatnot. And it was very challenging. And it was actually that yearning that caused me to start to look into history because I had a hunch that we'd only been told part of the story of what it means to be a black agriculturalist. And the part of the story that we've been told is around slavery. And if we're lucky, maybe about sharecropping and convict leasing and the USDA's discrimination against black farmers and these other more nuanced forms of oppression. But I thought there was probably more to it. And um, with that hypothesis dug into the literature, mostly in anthropology journals and of course, right? So many things that we think of as sustainable and organic agriculture, things like raised beds, composting, cover crops, uh, polyculture instead of monoculture, or, or even um, you know, economic structures like co-ops and CSAs, which stands for Community Supported Agriculture. These come out of the black community. You know, they come out of um, African and African diasporic agricultural experts. Um, and so that was really important for me. And of course, once I, I sort of found this, it, it's been this insatiable appetite to learn more and more. And I'm always, uh, you know, paying attention to what kind of literature is coming through. Um, but I think it's been not just empowering for me, but when folks come and want to learn to farm, to understand that our connection as a people to land is not boxed in by the oppression that took place on land. Um, while that's certainly relevant, we need to address it and heal from it and reparations, all that is really necessary. It's also important to connect to the fact that our ancestors had a noble, dignified relationship to land that was much, much, much longer in terms of years and deeper in terms of content um, than the, the few hundred years of, of um, chattel slavery and its predecessors. So um, it's, it's really been so important to, to reclaim that history. And a lot of the practices that we do here at Soulfire Farm come out of that research. Um, for example, we have a, a Jardin Lacou. So uh, my maternal ancestors are Haitian. And Jardin Lacou means house garden. It's a really cool intercropping of fruit trees together with medicinal herbs and they all help each other out like they bring pollinators they repel pests they mine nutrients um, is just one of the dozens of examples of of afro-indigenous practices that we use on the farm you're continually going back and you're educating us now um, there's an arrogance i guess to farming and I think the beauty of what you are doing is you are taking us back in a beautiful way. You're not, you're not imposing, you're educating. And there's a huge difference, a huge difference in my opinion, about how you are approaching things and the way you are farming. And you are inviting to all who truly want to learn. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate that. Yeah, and we, we really do... Um, 
we cherish the opportunity to get to share this knowledge and invite people into a process of truth, reconciliation, reconciliation and reparations. You know, it's like there is a lot of, of harm and a lot of pain that exists in our agrarian history and our, our present there. It's undeniable, right? And I also know from my own experience that, that this generation seems to be really ready um, to confront that with open hearts and minds, to have these hard, challenging, honest conversations and to make it right, you know, not just to pay lip service, but to make it right. You know, so one example of that is a project that we helped get off the ground is called the Northeast Farmers of Color Land Trust. Um, this land trust started with just some potlucks in the wintertime, a bunch of lonely black and brown farmers living in rural spaces, wanting to break the isolation. And then realized really quickly that a commonality among so many of us was not actually holding land um, because they were either employees on someone else's farm or had these short-term leases. And so we said, we really need a mechanism to have secure land tenure. And this land trust was born. And it's a really basic concept. Um, people who have inherited property, uh, who recognize that it's not rightfully theirs, you know, that it was first stolen from indigenous people and then, uh, you know, stolen again from other communities of color through exclusion and acts of violence and, and so on, are giving it back. So they're taking the deeds and handing it over to the land trust where it will be permanently protected um, and permanently used for both environmental and cultural purposes. And there's a lot of interest, you know, like people lining up to, to give some land back. And so it gives me quite a bit of hope that, that we're in a moment where um, we can finally look at that hard history without a whole lot of defensiveness and avoidance, you know, and then figure out what needs to be done. Well, how far back are these people going to realize that the land that they have was gotten by ill deeds? Are we going back like to the 1800s or as, as close as, you know, the 19s, 1900s? How far back? Well, it's a good question. And, you know, I think that um, I don't know what it is, what it's like where you are, but certainly almost the entire northeast of the United States, which is where our land trust operates, this is unceded territory. So these are territories that were stolen uh, from indigenous people by ill means, like full stop, right? Um, and even the ones that were, uh, you know, there's sort of claims that they were gotten by legitimate means, you can dig in a little bit and see, you know, all kinds of, of trickery and deception and uh, that went into those the, the paperwork that the Europeans ended up holding, you know, the Dutch and the, the French and the English. Um, so, so certainly there, but even more so, you know, take, for example, there's a policy in the United States at the end of World War II called the GI Bill. And what it did was provide 0% interest mortgages to veterans coming home from the war. Now, the veterans coming home from the war after World War II um, were coming to a segregated society where there were some practices in place around housing discrimination. Most notable is called redlining. And in short, redlining is a government practice of ranking neighborhoods from most desirable to least desirable and outlining communities of color in red and instructing banks that they were not permitted to lend to them with any of these federal monies. So what that ended up with is that very few people of color were able to take advantage of these mortgages. And the GI Bill is widely credited with creating the middle class. I mean, we're talking about property and homes for people who could not afford property and homes because they have a no interest um, government backed mortgage, but these went to white families. So that's an example of what we, we sort of term um, half jokingly, but not um, white affirmative action in our country. We've had a whole history of policies that have resulted in white people getting property. The Homestead Act is another one. Um, and so even if you can't necessarily trace your particular property right back to um, an unceded territory or an unfair war, there's a, a series of policies all throughout the history of our country that have resulted in the fact that right now 98% of our rural land is white owned, which is ridiculously high and actually higher than it's ever been in this country. So 98% of the farmland um, is white owned. And so I think there's a, an understanding amongst uh, the white community that's emerging, uh, white people of conscience of saying like, it's not so much about sort of my particular circumstance, but I'm in a society where I've benefited from this 
amalgamation of privileges over time. And so I really need to look at what's my responsibility to share back the things that were taken with my brothers and sisters um, who were left out, right, of these opportunities and these programs. As a comparative, at the height of when, I don't even know when you would call it, a more fair system was in place, the black and brown population, how much would they have owned in farmland when you would have, at the height, I guess, I, I don't know how better to, mm-hmm. to say it. Yeah, so at the peak of black farmland ownership, uh, black people owned 14% of the nation's farms. That was in 1910. Um, and it's a really inspiring and heartbreaking story because, you know, at the end of the Civil War, um, when enslaved Africans were emancipated, there was this promise that they would get a little bit of land. You've probably heard the adage like 40 acres and a mule. Uh, but that was a broken promise. The reparations were never given. And in fact, monies were paid by the government to the former so-called slave owners uh, for their lost property. So it was the opposite effect. But despite that, Black people did manage to save their own money um, over many generations and purchase these these small bits of land. And it, it amounted to 16 million acres or 14% of the nation's farms. Almost all of that is gone. Um, and there's a few reasons for that, but historians um, generally agree that the biggest reason is that the federal government, especially the US Department of Agriculture, uh, discriminated against these black farmers in terms of giving out loans, insurance, crop allotments, technical assistance, and other supports that were given to white farmers over the generation. And uh, black people actually banded together and sued the federal government and won. Um, in 1999, there's a very famous civil rights case called the Pigford case, uh, which is uh, was a $2 billion settlement, the largest in the history of this country. But by that time, uh, the farmers who were the plaintiffs in this class action suit were mostly in their 80s and 90s. They had long ago lost their farms. So it ended up being a symbolic victory, a little bit of cash for each person, um, but not really a game changer in terms of black farmland ownership, more just like a reckoning with history. Right? It's, it's a fascinating history. What I want to do, Leah, is stop here, take a quick break, because I really want to spend the, the next segment talking about how you are still fighting and um, working to get this inherent racism out of the system. So let's take a quick break here, everybody, and we'll be back in a minute. trouble now I thought how do we ever get so far down and how's it ever gonna turn around so I turned my eyes to heaven I thought God why don't you do something well I just couldn't bear the thought of people living in poverty and children sold into slavery the thought disgusted me so I shook my fist at heaven I said God why don't you do something
Listening to the Health Hub here on Radio Maria Canada, a Catholic voice wherever you are. To contact us and be a part of the show, email thh at radiomaria.ca. We now continue with the program. Here once again is your host, Kathy Biasi. Welcome back, everybody. We are here talking with Leah Peniman of Soulfire, and this is an important conversation. And what I want to do, Leah, the second half is really talk about what we're dealing with currently. We've talked about history, but there is still a huge undercurrent of racism um, in the food chain in in um, in society in general. We're seeing this huge movement, Black Lives Matter, um, pushing forward now, and it's gaining and gaining momentum. What Give us a really stark picture of what we are dealing with, because I don't think the blinders are off for a lot of us. Yeah, thanks for asking that. You know, a lot of people do ask me, they're like, what on earth does like race and food have to do with each other? Isn't food just like fruits and vegetables? And, you know, we've, we've taken a sort of walk through history to understand some of the conditions that have resulted in the food system we have, which is very racialized. You know, it's a food system that's built on stolen land and exploited labor. And we have not fundamentally shifted the DNA of that food system, uh, certainly in the United States, and, and I would argue globally. Uh, you know, if we look at labor, for example, um, in our nation, about 85% of the farm labor is done by people of color, ma- mainly uh, Mexican-born and other Latinx and Hispanic farm workers here on these temporary visas or here undocumented, uh, whereas only about 2% of the farms are managed by people of color. Um, that makes farm management uh, the, the whitest profession in, our, in the United States and farm labor the uh, brownest profession in the United States. And, and we don't have labor laws that adequately protect these farm workers. Uh, starting in the 1930s when we had federal labor laws, they actually excluded farm workers and domestic workers because they were black and you can read the transcripts of the, the committees that discussed it and that's, that's exactly why they did it, but it hasn't been updated, right? And so, so we still don't have the right to bargain, uh, the right to overtime pay, um, sick days, uh, right to a day off and seven child labor protections for farm and food workers um, in our country. Uh, we briefly talked about land disparities, you know, because of all of that history, you know, 98% of the land is white owned um, in our country, which is the highest it's ever been. And then, and then if you go to the consumer side as well, if you are uh, black, Latinx, uh, Hispanic, indigenous, you are much more likely to go hungry. You're much more likely to suffer from diabetes, heart disease, uh, kidney failure, and other diet related illnesses, not because of dietary choices that people are making, but because of this really insidious system that we call food apartheid. Uh, where, uh, you know, housing discrimination and ghettoization has resulted in certain neighborhoods that uh, don't have uh, supermarkets, farmers markets, community gardens, uh, public transportation, and other neighborhoods in, in wealthier and whiter areas that, you know, have these Trader Joe's and, and Whole Foods and, you know, a farmer's market on the corner and, and plenty of land to grow food and so forth. And so you end up with a, a really two worlds within the same nation where uh, people, despite the affluence all around them uh, societally, are really just struggling to get their basic needs met. You know, like one in three black children experience hunger um, in the United States. So, so this is the, the context. And it's not really fundamentally a different system than when you talk about police violence. 
uh, mass incarceration, uh, disparities in education, housing discrimination, you know, white supremacy is really baked into um, all of these systems. And so the good news with that is we can get at root cause and we can solve a lot of problems, right, all at once. We don't have to pick around the edges. But, you know, Soulfire is particularly focused on that intersection of racial justice and food. And uh, there's a whole lot of things we're doing about that. You know, on the ground, uh, one of the things is making sure that gardens and food are available to the people who are experiencing food apartheid. And, and so in our area, Albany, Troy, Schenectady, it's the capital district of, of New York State. Uh, there are whole pockets, whole areas that experience food apartheid. They don't have those sources of fresh food. And so we're doing a doorstep delivery of uh, fresh, healthy, culturally appropriate, uh, diverse box full of wonderful foods at no cost right to the homes of people. So it, it circumvents that transportation barrier as well as the monetary barrier. And then we're also building gardens, you know, providing the lumber and soil, the seeds, the plants uh, for families experiencing food apartheid and supporting them in growing their own food as well if they choose to do that. Um, so that's like one of, one of many programs we have going on that's trying to uh, get at this really insidious problem of racial disparity in the food system. And do you feel that it's just one piece of an overarching issue? Are you going at Congress? Um, you know, you said you were going to be on the phone afterwards with, with uh, legal powers and the powers that be. How are you going at Congress and, and legislature trying to, what are you trying to change at that level? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, something I love about Soulfire is we're both like very hands in the dirt and we also are part of this national and regional conversation about how to um, get at root cause. Um, and we have taken some time over the past few years to interview hundreds of black and brown farmers, farm workers, uh, and their organizations to try to develop policy platforms around what are the laws that need to change. And, you know, policy is really tangled. There's not like three easy steps and then it's solved. So if, you, if you're interested, you can go on our website, uh, soulfirefarm.org, take action, and there's a list of all the policies. But I'll give you a couple examples. Um, one of them is HR 40. Um, this is a bill to study reparations, which I know is a scary word for some people. It really means just repair. It means fix what's been broken. And it uh, commissions... Uh, a process to begin looking at how to give back stolen land and how to give back um, unpaid wages and other exclusions that have happened historically so we can address the ever-widening wealth gap in our country, which is right now around 16 to 1, meaning that a white child born today is 16 times wealthier in our country than a black child, not because of merit, because you can't do a whole lot in the womb, right, but because of inheritance and, and all of these issues. So that's one example. Another is we're working on the Fairness for Farm Workers Act. Um, which is a pretty modest piece of legislation. It just asks um, Congress to uh, classify farm workers and food workers in the same category as all other workers to get the same protections because right now farm and food workers are in a whole other category with lesser protections. So I was mentioning like they don't have the right to form a union or to have a day off or to be paid for their overtime. And so this would just equalize. And I would say the United States already has pretty abysmal federal labor laws. So it's, it's, you know, should be a no-brainer, but, and then the last example I'll mention is a new piece of legislation that will be coming out to be named, but it's specifically, um, it will be sponsored by Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker around creating a land trust uh, to set aside lands for black farmers, as well as to um, do some debt forgiveness around uh, related to the U historical USDA discrimination against existing black farmers. So uh, we've been working on that kind of behind the scenes, um, and that should be announced uh, within the next month or so. And so that would be a bill that actually incorporates a lot of these different policies that we've been advocating for. Are you seeing a shift? Are you virtually seeing a shift? I mean, to be honest, the fact that a presidential candidate would reach out to a farm like us and ask for input on policy, that's a shift. Like I've been in this field over 20 years and this has not even been part of the debate, part of the conversation at all. Um, and so I, I know that um, policy change is really slow, which is why we do, you know, we do things that have quicker turnaround, you know, like our programs mm -hmm. on the ground is at the same time, um, you know, but the fact that, you know, that these prominent legislators are even asking about these issues is, is a huge win for us. And I'm really excited about the future. 
Are you seeing a desire for children of color to want to farm or are you having to educate these kids to try and get their interests going to try and bring back this industry? Yeah. Um, so it's been really powerful, you know, because I was told the story that, you know, black folks don't want to farm. We, we get out of the South and away from the plantation and that's that, you know? Mm. And so I honestly assume that we'd just be out here on our own on the land, maybe a couple field trips once in a while from some school group and be delivering food. And we were not here more than a few months when we started getting phone calls from people all across the country being like, is it true? that there's like black folks farming in a rural space. Can I come? Can I learn? And we started creating these programs. You know, we have day long workshops. Uh, our most popular is a week long immersion, uh, both for teens, but also uh, mainly for adults uh, who are interested in a farming career. We have online programs. We have season long apprenticeships on and on. Right. And, and I posted these programs and they were filling up overnight. And now we have a multi-year waiting list of people who want to come out to the woods and learn how to farm. So no, we don't have to recruit people. We don't have to convince people. Um, it's been really amazing to see that it's not about interest or passion. It's really about what resources are available to our community um, and opportunities to pursue this path. Um, you know, so now we've been running these programs almost 10 years and we have a whole bunch of alumni who are out there running their own farms or taking other types of leadership in the food system. And um, we joke that it's our, our family, like family, extended <laughs> family all around the country and some including, and we have uh, alumni also in, in Canada and Puerto Rico and Mexico and in the UK. And are they carrying on the soul fire name as they're spreading out? Is that, um, is there always going to be a connection? Is soul fire going to be soul fire in Mexico, soul fire in Western United States? <laughs> well, we're definitely not trying to franchise, you know, one thing that is is pretty cool about the model um, that we have is we're, we're into biomimicry, which is copying nature. So when a tree in the forest is getting a whole lot of extra sunshine, she actually doesn't grow six times taller than the other trees, right? She shares the extra sugars and minerals through a network of fungal mycelium so that other trees can grow and thrive, um, not just family, but non-family. And so we think of it in a similar way where we are providing not just education, but we're also supporting our alumni to find land, hooking them up with jobs and scholarship monies and other resources so that they can grow a locally appropriate solution to whatever the food and farming needs are in their community. You know, for example, um, in Chicago, there's the Caratumbo Co-op, and this is a farm led by um, undocumented people who do a CSA. Um, they're alumni of ours. Three of them are alumni of ours. Um, there's a farm in Atlanta, Georgia called High Hog that works on uh, fiber. So, you know, raising uh, rabbits and llamas and sheep for fiber and then training farmers in the community how to get into that. And two of our alumni are part of that project, both from the same family and many other examples. And so it's not that we want a bunch of soul fires that are, you know, the same, uh, but we hope that there's an essence, a spark of magic that people take from soul fire as well as, you know, practical skills and knowledge and that they are able to, you know, create something that really makes sense for their local area. Have you ever had people from Canada come? We have. Uh, we've had several folks from Canada come down uh, from the Métis community, Métis community. I don't know how to pronounce that properly. Mm -hmm. um, a whole group, a whole group of Indigenous folks um, joined us last year. Um, we have three alumni from the Toronto area, one from Ottawa. Um, so there's been uh, a couple from Montreal also. So there's been a great group. And in fact, some of our, our very active alumni are from Canada. We we have a speakers collective where alumni are invited to um, take media gigs and public speaking as part of the Soulfire Farm family and uh, speak on behalf of our group. And, and there's a couple of uh, Canadians who are very active um, taking up those media opportunities. So that's exciting for us. When you look at your website, you see a rainbow of colors of people. So you're, you're, not, you're not sticking to just um, one group of people, right? You're educating everybody. I want to make that clear to, to people that are listening. Go on the website and you'll see uh, white, brown, black, yellow, everyone, right? Yeah, so we have programs that are designed for all different groups. You know, for example, uh, we have an uprooting racism in the food system training 
and um, it's had to pivot online because of COVID, though it used to be mm -hmm. in person. And this one is geared for a multiracial community, but especially has in mind folks who are descended from um, Europe. So white, white identifying people are European Americans or Euro Canadians. And this is a, a day long course that supports people in examining their roles of both uh, complicity as well as resistance in white supremacy and helps them make action plans around uh, organizational change. Uh, we have other programs that are sp specifically about um, indigenous connection to land or, or Afro-indigenous connection to land. Um, and then we have our, our monthly community farm days uh, when we're not in a pandemic where, you know, people come from all communities and come together. Um, so we certainly have something for just about everyone, and we do our best to keep up with the demand and, and usually fail. But um, <laughs> yes, please do check out our website and see if there's And luckily fail, you. right? <laughs> That's a good yes, thing. It's, it's I have to possible. ask you, in, in 2020, you know, how has the philosophy of Soul Fire Farms and your mission come to terms or even have been elevated against the backdrop of COVID and Black Lives Matter? I mean, these are two huge historical things that have happened um, in 2020. And has this served you well? Have these um, two events served you well in elevating your mission? Oh my goodness, what a time to be alive, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, what a time to be alive. So I will say that um, if there was ever a doubt that the work of creating local resilient food systems and racially just food systems uh, was relevant, that doubt is completely erased, right? Because I, I remember when pandemic hit, just we'd already been overwhelmed with interest, but then seeing how many people are reaching out and saying, we absolutely need to learn how to grow our own food. Can you help us? We ended up starting all these new online programs like Ask a Sister Farmer, which is a Friday's 4 p.m. Eastern, you know, gardening talk show. We started, you know, these expert forums to help farmers navigate funding during the pandemic and marketing. So if there was ever a doubt about relevancy, that was definitely erased. And then, of course, uprising on top of that, the, the fact that uh, the United States and so many other nations are in a moment of, of reckoning and awakening around the undeniable truth that that anti-Black racism is really strong still and needs to be addressed. And so... And here we are at the intersection of these issues, right? Like food and mm -hmm. racial justice. And so it has been a powerful time to be alive. We are certainly tired. We are busier than ever um, trying to meet the needs of our community um, around these issues and, and, you know, make available whatever resources that we have. Um, and I would say there's certainly nothing to, to celebrate around, you know, the murder of George, George Floyd and others like him were nothing to celebrate about the deaths of our elders and others in COVID. Um, my only prayer is that that we really learn from this time that it doesn't become some kind of passing fad, uh, but that it is a fundamental shift in the way we see things where we start to embrace the power of local food systems of mutual aid. Um, of figuring out what public safety looks like that doesn't rely on armed police forces, you know, figuring out what what reparations and racial justice looks like. Like, I, I really pray that this, um, you know, I'm a biologist by trade. And so you want to think about evolution in terms of this dynamic equilibrium where you have stasis, 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 and then this disruptive event and big change. I hope that, I hope that we are in that moment of, um, of disruption to create a, to bring us to a new level of evolution um, and that we can go from there and create a more just and healthy and sustainable world. Wow, I admire you, Leah. You're a wonderful woman. Um, I want to give you uh, some space here at the end of the show to talk about your book, to talk about its relevance and why you wrote it. Oh, thank you. You know, Toni Morrison said, if there is a book that needs to be written that doesn't exist, go and write it. And Farming While Black is really that. I mean, I had mentioned earlier just yearning to find examples of my ancestors and my people's relationship to land that weren't just about slavery and loss. And that book didn't exist. You know, those stories didn't exist in one place. They were in these obscure uh, journals and, on Google Scholar. And so, and I, I needed to write it. So it's, 
it's really dedicated to the memory and, and honoring our ancestral grandmothers who had the audacious courage to braid seeds into their hair before being forced onto transatlantic slave ships. And, you know, if they had that foresight to, to say, tuck away some seeds as insurance for their descendants, um, I think like, who am I to give up on my descendants? So farming while black is really this seed uh, metaphorically and literally the seed tucked into braid and stowed away and passed on. Um, it's a, a really practical book. It teaches you how to farm. So there's that if you're looking for that. It also has all of this historical knowledge about the role of um, African people and African diaspora people in terms of uh, creating really cool agricultural ideas. And then it's got fun anecdotes about Soul Fire Farm and how we got started and all the mistakes we made. So if you just want to laugh and look at pictures, <laughs> it's there too. Uh, but yeah, it's Farming While Black. It came out late in 2018 through Chelsea Green Publishing and it's available anywhere that books are sold. Um, there was a moment when it was actually sold out early in the pandemic. So that was pretty funny. People were rushing to to get um, get their, <laughs> to get their own books. copy yeah. <laughs> to figure yeah. out how to do it all on their own. It's, but I it's think wonderful. they restock the shelves, so I think you can you can find it. Well, congratulations to you on so many fronts. I mean, it's just it's just wonderful what you're doing. I admire you, and it's not going to be falling on deaf ears. We're going to continue to to uh, cheer you on and to really bring what you're doing to the forefront because it's so important and it now is the time. So congratulations, Leah, for everything you're doing and thank you for taking the time to be with us and share your vision, your dreams and your movement on the health hub. Oh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. I wish you the best. Thank you very much. And everyone will talk to you next week on the health hub. Hosted by Kathy Biasi here on Radio Maria Canada.